0: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, ZenCaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast's discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
0: You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 13 with Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today, Dr. Garfinkel interviews Don Laponi about his career in rock art, working with the Kumeyaay of Southern California and shamanism as it relates to rock art.
2: Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art, both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is uh, your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Our numbers are growing. I just heard that we get about 100 downloads for each episode, and almost 1,000 people have downloaded the show to date. This is the 13th episode of the Rock Art Podcast, and we're blessed and honored to have Don Laponi as our guest rock art scholar today. I want to let you all know that if you're liking these episodes, please tell me and tell our web host from the Archaeology Podcast Network. And certainly we're interested in getting your feedback. If there's anyone who would care to be interviewed, I'm booking about a month in advance. If there's anyone who would care to help us sponsor and underwrite the costs of this, my contact information is, my email is avram, that's A-V-R-A-M. 1952 at yahoo.com or you can contact me by phone at 805-312-2261 and of course you can go on the California Rock Art Foundation website at carockart.org and without a further ado I'd like to introduce Don LaPone. Don how are you today?
1: Fine Alan thanks for inviting me.
2: Don is a, a wonderful guest scholar rock art scholar And we're going to kick off this adventure talking a bit about his background, in terms of his academic background and how he journeyed into the study of rock art. He's a best-selling author. He has two books out on La Rumorosa rock art that have been sold out. He's working on a third volume, of research relating to the study of shamanism and its relationship to rock art. And we'll get into that, I believe, on the third segment. But I think to uh, kick off our study, Don... Maybe you could take us on a journey back to your background and how you became interested in the study of rock art, both anthropology, archaeology, and the uh, nature of Indigenous people, Native Native people in America.
1: Well, first of all, I, I'd like to say these books have a website, and it's com, And some of the information that we'll be talking about is available on the website. You can also get the books, but you don't have to if you just want to learn more about La Romerosa. There's a lot of good information there. Let's see, how did I get started? Really, my father was very ill. And since he's gone, let me tell you that he was an alcoholic and he disappeared for about two years when I was a teenager and came back and was sober. And started a project out by Acumba, California, which is right near the border on the edge of where the mountains drop away to the desert floor.
2: That's the border between Mexico and California.
1: Right. Yeah. California and Mexico. About an hour west of El Centro and about an hour east of San Diego. When he was making his comeback, he started a project out in Acumba building a park. And to do this, he hired about 30, 35 Kumeyaay Indians to help him. And he spent about a year and a half with these Kumeyaay building this park, and it really changed him. And there's a little episode that's on the website about him trying to convey to me what the Kumeyaay had taught him. And it was so ethereal and over my head, you know, I was thinking I was like 18 and I didn't have a clue. But uh, I didn't forget that lesson. And again, that story is on the website. But that was the beginning.
2: Don, you mentioned the Kumeyaay Indians. Can you give us a sense of who they are, Uh, maybe how many they are and what uh, particular... You know traditions they might have
1: let's see they have the largest footprint of rock art in southern california by territory and by amount and their rock art starts in the peninsula range and goes all the way out to the colorado river and beyond it goes a good hundred miles down into baja and to the north it goes up to the riverside county line they have enormous territory of rock art. Anyway, the Kumeyaayas are still around today, and we'll get into that later, but there are about 20 reservations, and many of their prehistoric holdings are in the hands of the BLM and other government agencies.
2: So continuing your story, your dad had a project, and he hired quite a number of Kumeyaay Native Americans, Indians, for that project, Mm -hmm. and I guess he tried to impress upon you the nature of their religious tradition and worldview. am I correct?
1: Right. It was very strange to me at that time. Now I appreciate it much more. But at that time, it was so different from everything that I had been taught in school and much better, really.
2: And so where did you go from there in terms of uh, your own personal or professional development? How did you mature and where did you go academically and by way of a career?
1: Well, I'm not sure that I matured, but I got <laughs> <laughs> for okay. about 20 or 30 years, making a career uh, as a chemist and then became a hospital pharmacist and then went on to do research. But I didn't forget about all that. And I think one of my brothers met Edward Abbey of Desert Solitaire fame and somehow some way that got me reinterested in the southwest and so i started going to utah and arizona but i could only go there for a couple of weeks out of
2: the year because i was working what did you find when you went to utah and arizona
1: rock art beyond and ruins and culture beyond anything i could have imagined and so i started learning in a general way but i still hadn't returned home to San Diego County and Imperial County, the two lower counties in California, uh-huh. you know, but that came.
2: How did those experiences on these uh, brief vacations of a couple of weeks into Utah and Arizona affect you in terms of your life? What did you learn, or what what engaged your your senses that got you hooked on all this?
1: I think, well, first of all, those states for those of you that need to go there are unbelievably beautiful it, the impact of seeing untouched wilderness along desert lines it has a real draw and there's a field of archaeology or a field of thought in archaeology called post-processualism or postmodernism they're not equivalent but one of the tenets of postmodernism that i agree with is the fact that People are searching for truth, but all they get is fakery. And the truth of the desert and the desert people is what really grabbed me. It's like finding, you know, something to nourish your soul. And it really left me thirsty uh, to go back again and again. But I could only go for brief periods of time.
2: So I think you're saying, Don, that, that you really had a bit of a spiritual revelation there in the desert and the desert touched your soul and you really felt that this was uh, you know filling you with something that you had never experienced before. Yes. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because when you s- sit and look at a pictograph or a petroglyph or a geoglyph you're looking at something that was painted or carved hundreds or thousands of years ago and it's it's just Astounds me that you can sit there and look at it. And hundreds of years ago or a millennium ago, an Indian sat there painting this.
2: It is remarkable. It's kind of a, a freeze frame, isn't it? It's sort of a, a touchstone in time where you can connect back to another individual, another people across the, the ages and kind of envision what they were thinking and what they were seeing and what they were feeling. You're in the same place, the same place on the landscape. And it really does, to me, it's just phenomenal. It just is a, I don't know if you call it a transforming experience, but I do, as you find, it to be very spiritual and and very just filling. It fills your soul, as I would say. It sings your spirit.
1: Yeah. One idea that might help to convey this, I give this anecdote when I give talks on La is imagine yourself, you walk outside in the dark and there's a magic helicopter there and the helicopter takes you out to the desert, to the middle of the desert. But there's one catch. The helicopter is also a time machine. It takes you back a couple thousand years and drops you off in the desert. You have no clothes, nothing to eat and you, know, you have to deal with the elements. And just imagine what that life would be like. You don't have iPods, a computer, you don't even have any shoes or uh, clothes or food, and you're just on your own. And these people thrived, the Kumeyaay thrived for about 10,000 years in San Diego before we showed up. They must have been onto something And they didn't destroy the planet doing it.
2: So when you began to emerge from your visits, what happened next in your life to sort of lead you down your current path? Where did you go and when did you sort of begin to transition from perhaps your professional life into your life with rock art?
1: Well, you know, I became desperate because, like I was saying, I could not go to Utah and Arizona, but for brief bursts of time. And then it was just insane trying to get everywhere that I had read about that I wanted to go. And so out of desperation, I remembered where my father took me and thought, you know, maybe there's rock art around here that I could see. And through uh, talking to some friends, I began to, compile rock art information and, you know, I started spending a lot more time in the local deserts to see things that I wanted to see. And it was really just as satisfying. And one thing that we might get into kind of getting ahead of the story is I realized that there was almost a total vacuum in terms of rock art inventory, location information, good photography, and someone to tell the Kumeyaay story. So that's how I came back and kind of came home. And then once I retired, I had a lot more time on my hands uh, to do these
2: things. At what age did you retire and how many years have you been sort of in this particular realm of, let's say, rock art, research, publishing, and your continuing scientific studies?
1: Um, probably about 10 years ago. So I was about 60.
2: And so... Uh, as you retired then, what happened next to sort of prompt your, your venture into uh, study, inventory, documentation, and ultimate publication of the rock art of the Kumeyaay?
1: Well, I think starting to network with other people that were also going to that area of the desert and meeting several people, eventually meeting s- some Kumeyaay meeting a lot of the archaeologists in san diego and still it occurred to me uh, early on i just wanted to see the rock art and take nice pictures of it i see it got out of control
2: (laughs) (laughs) became became a grand obsession did it not
1: yeah and i mean the the first book which like you said it sold out that took about seven years of work
2: to create. Seven years to create. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, because I wasn't sure how to write or what to write, and I wanted it to be respectful. And also we had discovered at that time, maybe about 200 panels of La Ruma rock art, both here and in, in Baja. So we had material.
2: I see. The first segment is almost over. So I think this is potentially a good, a good place to stop for a moment to take a breather. And then in the next segment, maybe we can begin to discuss uh, how you assembled the data for the first book. All right. See you on the flip-flop, gang. <laughs>
0: off your first three months, or go to z e n c a s t r. dot and use the code RockArt. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing, and core structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode.
2: Welcome back to the second uh, segment. We're in episode 13. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And we have as our illustrious guest, Don Laponi, noted author, best-selling author, and uh, rock art researcher, And we'd like to uh, pick things up as we uh, finished up in the first segment a little bit more now with the um, beginning of his passion for the study of what's called La Rumorosa rock art. And I think before we get too much into that, why don't you uh, give us a bit of a definition and maybe a word picture of what this La Rumorosa rock art is all about and why it might have hooked your fancy.
1: Well, like we were talking about, I was going to Utah and Arizona on vacations and the quality of the, the rock art, I would say maybe the, the best place I ever went was the petrified forest area for just really high
2: quality Native
1: American rock art.
2: And what does that mean when you say high quality? What is it about the execution? And are these rock drawings or rock paintings?
1: Well, in that area, it's almost all petroglyphs. Okay. In many other areas, uh, pictographs, which I kind of like more uh, okay. because it has color. Right. And it's obviously you can do a lot more with paint than you can with a rock chisel.
2: Sure. So when you look at the La Rumorosa rock art amongst the Kumiai, is it mostly petroglyphs or is it mostly paintings?
1: It's almost exclusively paintings, pictographs. Okay. Okay. And Some of the panels are, say, like at La Ruma Rosa in Baja, which Mm -hmm. is the mother site just on the other side of the border.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: a, A couple of miles from where my dad was working and other panels in California stand up to any art in the Southwest. And what I couldn't believe, Alan, was nobody had covered it. And Really, I think it was uh, nobody knew where the sites were.
2: So it's relatively an unknown. And when you say it, it holds up to the rock art in the Southwest. Is it because of the character of the rock art, the locations, the subject matter, the colorful nature? What is it about the rock art? Uh, If you could paint us a word picture of what it's like to, to immerse yourself in La Rumorosa rock art.
1: Well, one of the things that really grabbed me, uh, apart from the quality of the artwork, was that they put most of it in caves, which makes it really atmospheric to be in a dark cave and you see these amazing paintings on granite. That's just the whole picture of this. And uh, La Rumerosa rock art is almost exclusively painted by I shaman. And so I don't know if you've covered the neuropsychological model on this show or not.
2: No, no. In fact, this is really the first deep dive we're making into the study of shamanism. I know that's surprising, but this is the 13th episode and we haven't even really touched at all on shamanism or the neuropsychological model. So it's wide open for your discussion, Don. You can uh, try, to, try to brief us. Thank you.
1: Yeah, briefly, the hallmark of shamanism is altered states of consciousness. Of course, we latch on to the ones that were induced by drugs. And for the Kumeyaay, they had Datura, a jimson weed relative, and Indian tobacco. Those were their main two drugs, although peyote made a resurgence in other areas of Southern California. But basically, this is a simple story. A shaman looking for spiritual knowledge to help his tribe or his group goes to a remote spot. And for La Rosa, that's usually a cave or a mountaintop. Some place in cultural landscapes are uh, is an entity that's making a lot of notoriety right now, putting the whole landscape together. But anyway, the shaman goes to a cave he enters a trance or altered states of consciousness and therein he meets spirit helpers who give him spiritual knowledge in order to help his group. When the shaman will usually spend one night, maybe four nights in a cave in altered states of consciousness, gathering knowledge, and when he comes out of that experience in order to validate that trance he paints and so he will paint either geometric forms but the often called abstract forms but they may not have been abstract to him they may have meant they obviously they meant something to him or he would paint anthropomorphs sunbursts spirit helpers which would be any kind of animal
2: um that type of thing and so these paintings of what colors are they
1: well, in La Rumorosa, red is the most dominant color, but also black, white, yellow, and orange. There's no real true blue or green, but some black pigments age into blue. Like at Indian Hill, there are some blue-looking paintings, but it's actually black pigment.
2: And so on the, on the rocks, you see this amazingly colorful array of geometrics and and rarely human figures or animal figures as well and i guess also there are um, enigmatic elements that uh, appear to be celestial aren't there like stars or suns or moons and yes. things like that yeah 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 who are these shamans who are they what is their role in in the kumiai culture and and what was their function
1: their function was like Shamans, their primary function was to cure people that were sick, but they also functioned in a number of other roles. But they were basically the spiritual person when the group needed some information, uh, high quality information. They went and did their trance thing and return with that information, uh, usually given to them by a spirit helper.
2: So are they religious leaders? Are they considered religious leaders in some ways?
1: Yes, I would say so. And um, I wanted to bring up something that I think is the most important thing that I might say in this episode is both Alan and I have read this book called Spirit Talkers. And it's about shaman, Indian shaman in this country. It's about 50 years of experience. The writer, who is also a shaman himself, validating that the shaman could actually do exactly what they said they could do. We tend to think, well, they're silly Indians. They have this mythology and we're the smart Western European American scientists. What do they know? And as it turns out, they know a lot. And after reading that book, which I highly recommend to anybody remotely interested in Indians' ability to solve problems and meet their spiritual destiny, and I will convince you that they're entirely real.
2: I think what I want to convey is that there are religious functionaries in in many religions, and certainly in the Native American religion, Mm -hmm. sometimes we call them mystics, sometimes we call them saints, sometimes we call them other things. But we're talking about individuals that understand or convey or connect between the world of the supernatural and the natural and sort of their intermediaries. And part of that is they're powerful people that can do things that we consider to be, you know, supernatural. How's that? Miraculous. That's true. Yeah. And it could be uh, healing. It could be telekinesis or bilocation, all these terminologies being in two places at once predicting the future, somehow uh, understanding in advance of where the animals might be located so that they can hunt and slay them and eat. I could go on and on, but mm-hmm. these are the kinds of things we're talking about here. And although sometimes it's hard to, for someone of Western industrial background, yeah. to understand the growing scientific evidence supports the validity of, of these concepts, does it not, Don?
1: Yes, I mean if if I can help the audience a little bit, last Sunday night on 60 Minutes, they had a segment on inducing trance with LSD or psilocybin or other hallucinogens. Datura would do something similar or you know, any other drug that would put you in an altered states of consciousness. Anyway, the point of that program. Was people who did this that were depressed, had anxiety, were dying of cancer, other challenges like that came away from the experience, which is essentially a shamanistic trance, saying it was the most meaningful experience in their lives. So if they can do that, imagine what somebody who is really centered around a spiritual viewpoint of the world do with a trance. And, you know, we're looking at one little part of that, which is rock art.
2: Exactly. Well, that's wonderful, Don. I think that helps uh, the people in uh, podcast land understand and appreciate some of the things we're saying. So we're talking about the shamans. We're talking about how they act as intermediaries and how they paint on the rocks. How does that relate to your research? let's say for the first book and how you then assembled over the course of seven years discoveries. And what did you discover in your journey of, of study scientific investigation of La Rumorosa Rockart?
1: Well, I started just to take photographs and I wanted to see as much as I could find. And we built a network of maybe about 50 people, collaborators and what we started out doing was walking the desert. And if we got a tip on something, we would follow it. But a lot of times we just looked ourselves. We had no information and we would just take an area and maybe 10 of us would comb that area, finding everything that we could find and sharing the information and going back and getting more. And over the course you know, of a couple of years, now say 10 years later we have 2250 loci of rock art that's a lot of rock art and again you know that's uh it's pretty amazing really when you think about it it's like we salvaged or saved a heritage of you know a couple of thousand years
2: so when you how many uh, sites had you found when you published the first book? Do you remember?
1: I think we were about halfway there.
2: Okay. So when you published that first book, uh, tell us a bit about the journey of actually publishing a book and, and what that was all about for you. We have a few minutes left in this segment. So let's, let's maybe talk about the first book a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought there has to be a way to share this. With people because again say five years ago when the book was kind of coming around there was no information on local rock art well very little uh, one book had been published by manfred knack called forgotten artist but other than that there was nothing that was available to the public and as i thought more about it it wasn't just good enough to me to just publish a book of photographs. So we started looking at what Native Americans had published in this area and what archaeologists had published in this area. And we put it all together and we had the different perspectives of a Native American, a professional and a vocationalist. And it really turned out like way better than I deserved. And, you know, I think God was sort of directing our steps but our intentions were good and it turned out okay.
2: Exactly. You, you produced an extraordinary book. As I understand it, it sold out. And also, we'll talk about in the next segment how that affected the Kumeyaay people and how you uh, blessed them and assisted them in sort of the preservation of this treasure of cultural heritage.
1: Yeah, that is a great story. So stay tuned.
2: This is a rather exciting story, and it continues to move and create in various wonderful ways. And on the next segment, we'll get into the uh, way in which the books have affected the heritage values of the Kumeyaay. See you on the next round.
0: You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea Public Store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show.
2: Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we're being sponsored by the California Rock Art Foundation. And we have as our guest scholar, we're honored to have uh, Don Laponi, noted uh, best-selling author, who's going to uh, lead us a little further in the journey, how this uh, series of books and his own research have uh, made a difference, both to the archaeological community, the scientific basis, but also the Native people as well. Don, it's all yours.
1: We had the first book done, and then I had another Great idea. What if we could give these books to the Kumeyaay? There's plenty of them around. And uh, I thought they would really like that. And so I was able to get a grant. And we gave 500 copies of the first book and the second book to the Kumeyaay people. And I'm telling you, I never expected, I was nervous. But I never expected what was going to happen after that. These people and their children and every high school Kumeyaay student got a book and everybody else who wanted one got a book. And these people were so grateful and so proud that somebody had taken the time and made the effort to recover their culture. Just because they're Kumeyaay doesn't mean they can find this stuff. It's really hard to find. Some sites, I would make 10 trips to find the site before I could locate it. And they don't have that kind of time. They're struggling to make ends meet. So anyway, it just became a great interaction. They invited me to be on their education council. We started a Kumeyaay internship for archaeology high school students to learn archeology. span If they can qualify, the Kumeyaay students get a scholarship to the University of California. But we have yet to produce one Kumeyaay scientist, and that's desperately needed for many reasons. But one reason pertinent to this program is the Kumeyaay need to explain to us, if they want to, But hopefully they would tell us what the rock art means to them and what they think it means in general terms. That might be asking too much. They like to be private about these things because they're spiritual things. And they don't think a white audience would understand what it means to them. But in any case, things are heading in the right direction.
2: Give us some examples of some of the contributions and some of the things that maybe the Kumeyaay have said or done or what the the general newspapers and other things have said about your book. I know you've had a lot of kudos and a lot of recognition. And I know that you've uh, basically sold out the first, first uh, volume and uh, probably almost sold out the second volume. What have you uh, heard and what have you sensed from both the Scientific population, the general audience, and the Native people themselves.
1: Well, the professional community has really been on board with these books because, honestly, they don't have any, there's no competition for them. This is the, the only two books on this subject. And again, this rock art is the most pervasive in Southern California and Western Arizona and in Baja so the response and remember each book has about a dozen archaeologists contributing to it and so everybody has been really great from that standpoint what it has helped me because rock art is to me it's more meaningful if you can put it in context in other words how many rock art panels can you look at And you have no idea what they mean before it kind of gets to be repetitive. And I should know because I did that for a while. But now that I understand the spiritual aspects pertaining to rock art, we were able to take a group of Kumeyaay elders into Carrizo Gorge, which is a famous huge village area in Anza Borrego Desert State Park. We took a group of Kumeyaay there and we had a sage ceremony and there was a reporter from the San Diego paper that was there and he recorded in words uh, what happened and they put that in the paper and it really caught fire. We were able to raise a lot of money for the Kumiai internship program and it helped uh, display Kumiai rock art.
2: What did the reporter say in that article that caused such a um, excitement or motivation to help the Kumeyaay
1: well in today's world a lot of us are searching for meaning spiritual meaning i think to fight the way that the world is and our own personal struggles and the Kumiai are very authentic about this by and large they live a spiritual life and rock art is one symbol of that spirituality and That's, I think, what draws your listeners and us and a lot of other people into rock art is it's, it's aesthetically beautiful, but also it has a connection to the spirituality that everyone is looking for.
2: I like that. Yes, definitely. And so one of the sidebars, one of the main sort of takeaways from all this is that the Kumiai are now sort of embracing. And connecting with their cultural heritage is that correct
1: yes because again they did not know where many of these sites uh, are and we were able to give that to them and for the students if if you have to survive as a native american in today's world it's pretty grim this has been a bright light locally for people that are living today not that Ancient dusty past, but people that are alive today, the descendants of the painters.
2: And so they've been able to embrace and study and learn. And this has helped them to sort of make a connection with their ancestors and the archaeology and anthropology and sort of produced a bit of a bridge, hasn't it been, between yeah. science and religion? Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, it's good if you can have both.
2: Yeah. Tell us about what you've discovered and what you're doing right now to scientifically relate to the study of shamanism and the nature of La Kumiai rock art, because that's very exciting, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And Ed line the writer, said, you know, the only work that counts is the work in progress. And, you know, by the way, there are copies of the second book left. If you decide that you want one, go to the book website, larumerosarockart.com. And you can see many of the things that we're talking about. Yes. So we had these books, which were made both for professionals and for the public. But I thought this whole inventory is running around in my head. And if I die, it goes with me. And one thing that I would like to accomplish while I'm still here is to do a professional treatment for the professional community to tell them about the rock art in a way that is meaningful to them. Again, looking towards the future, if we produce a Kumeyaay archaeologist or when we do, then they will have this inventory and professional or scientific attributes of it. So I've been working on that for the past year or so.
2: So when you're working on that, what is it that we're, that you and I, of course, by collaboration, what is it that we're testing, trying to do? What is it we're evaluating? What are the scientific discoveries and connections we're attempting to uh, either demonstrate or persuade others in terms of this remarkable uh, database that you've put together? Probably one of the larger databases, even in California, for that matter.
1: Right. Well, I think it would surprise many in your audience that one of the most significant ideas to come along in the interpretation or the maybe it's more correct to say the origins of rock art is the neuropsychological model. And this was tied together by a South African scientific group, uh, David Lewis Williams, Thomas Dosen, David Pierce. Anyway, what they came up with is that the human mind or the nervous system has basically been stable, more or less, for at least 10,000 years, maybe 30,000 years, or even 50,000 years. What's the most relevant is that the human mind of all of those people will react in similar fashion to trance or whether it's induced by drugs or other mechanisms. And what they're zeroing in on is the imagery that people see when they're in trance. And for those in your audience who might have a friend who did LSD at one time, you can ask them, what did you see? And you'll, you would have seen geometrics, representational figures, and then a confluence of both. And what they found originally was with the San people of South Africa. One of the students in South Africa was an archaeologist named David Whitley, who works at ASM affiliates in Telachapi. And he brought this idea to California rock art or Southern California rock art. Again, nobody had applied it to La Romerosa, the largest body of rock art in southern california so that's what we're doing now is trying to do a current review of the literature the related topics and the data to present it to the scientific community
2: so i guess what you're saying don is really you're using this database of rock art to test if this original theory on the origins formation and character of rock art from these uh, ritual adepts these people that are called shamans worldwide and this cognitive or this neuropsychological model Mm -hmm. using altered states of consciousness and trances and using various means of attaining that as they perceive in visions certain images that those images are in fact commemorated on the rocks and relate back to these designs and forms and characters that we see so beautifully ensconced on these uh, rock canvases is that correct
1: yeah no that's it
2: yeah so even as an interim sort of conclusion what does the data seem to say to you vis-a-vis the la rock art and its relationship to this theory
1: pertinent aspects of trance are you see this altered states of consciousness imagery that we've been talking about And you see evidence of spirit helpers, which are basically animals, not cows or horses, but animals that were relevant to the Indians, whether they're snakes, lizards are a big thing in La rock art. And then a class that we haven't talked about at all is prevalent in La and many other styles of California are therianthropes which are part human, part animal. And you see a lot of those in trance in Southern California. You'll see therianthropes, spirit helpers, head embellishments, inferring a shaman. You see dual beings, which is totally just left me stunned that you see these pairs of beings of some kind next to each other. I would say that the best anthropomorphic panel in all of the southwest is in la romorosa and it's in a cave and it has two golden anthropomorphs and it's a very famous panel it's called um, echo rock or wiki Whip.
2: so these be- beautiful golden animal human figures are are twinned are they
1: well what it looks like in many cases is you have one being that's fairly human uh, mm-hmm. Normal. The other being will either have a lizard tail, uh, bird feet, a bird head, wings oh. will be part snake, part man, have additional limbs, uh, a lot of things that are compatible with trance. And then we we don't have time to talk about this, but there are also metaphors of trance mm-hmm. like death and dying, uh, right. bodily transformation and some other ones. And you see a lot of that also in the rumorosa.:
2: So I guess we've just scratched the surface, but we're running out of time. Sounds like, Dom, we may have to have you back just to discuss this model and talk about the relationship of Loro rock art to the shamanic platform. But, but with that, is there one last comment you might make in terms of maybe communicating to the general public and telling them, what your sort of dreams are and wishes would be for them vis-a-vis La rock art.
1: I think the most important concept to me is, yes, I really like rock art, uh, the artwork of it, but learning about the context and about the person that made the rock art and our own spiritual homecoming really ties life all together. And it became so much more meaningful to me, when I started looking at things that way and I'm sure many in your audience will find that attractive too.
2: Sounds great well Don I'm sorry we've run out of time but I'll have to ask you to come back again and this has been a tremendous blessing and a very informative you know journey that you've given us in this interview and I thank you for taking the time to come on the show and share this share your passion for rock art at the uh, rock art podcast thank you
0: Yeah, thanks very much, Alan. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective.
2: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology
1: Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at
2: www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at com.
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com/ slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.